Well, listen, we're so glad that you're here with us, and if you're uh, our guest this morning, we welcome you, and our senior pastor, Pastor Rick Countryman, is on vacation, and so he's enjoying a time away with his family. Over the last two weeks prior, we began a new series that's entitled One in Christ, and Pastor Rick has invited uh, pastors from the local community to be with us. Uh, we did this last year during the month of June. We're doing it again this year. And we have had a marvelous two weeks already, and I want you to know that today is going to be a marvelous time for us as well. Pastor Jim Applegate is with us. He is the pastor of the Redeemer Church here in town. He started that church about seven years ago with his wife, Heather. And uh, Jim is, uh, is a pretty good guy, but his wife, Heather, is really uh, a greater, greater, not good guy, but good gal. I've known them for a lot of years. I served on staff, in fact, with Jim's dad when Jim was a little bit younger. But you're going to enjoy this morning what God has to say to us. So would you welcome up Jim Applegate, everyone. Thanks, brother. Thank you. All right. Well, it is a real treat to be with you this morning. I cannot believe your pastor let me talk to you. I gave him many outs when he called. I said, are you sure? Do you know who I am? Do you know kind of some of the things that have been pinned on me? And uh, he said, no, I, I've heard you teach. And uh, I, I just want to say thanks to him before you guys that uh, I can't believe the grace that that man has to share his pulpit in this way. What a wonderful blessing. Um, so greetings from uh, Redeemer to you. There's a great group of people that are meeting in a Seventh-day Adventist church, they meet on Saturdays. We meet there on Sundays. They're meeting there right now. And uh, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it is great just to see this whole town kind of lit up with praise this morning for Jesus, for sure. I don't know if you realize this, but I am the third church planter that Rick has invited. And I think he probably did that on purpose. Um, church planter, that term is for a person who actually goes out and starts a church. So the first week you had Mike Moore, he started the church in Manteca. And then last week you had Randy Balling, who started the church on the other side of the town called The Well, out on Claws Road. That guy is crazy. <laughs> he moved to Modesto without knowing anybody and started a church. That, that is, he gets the award of the year, I think, of the de of lifetime, you know? And then uh, me, um, I got about 10 friends together and said, hey, I really feel like the Lord's calling us to go start a church. What do you think? And they said, yes. And then we went and did that together and uh, started Redeemer in 2007. And I just want you to know, as a church, we, Redeemer, we are so grateful for Big Valley because you have invested in church planters, You've invested in church planters. There were some people who, when we started Redeemer, came from Big Valley and said, we're interested in starting a new church. And you didn't say at that point, no, you need to stay here. You said, if God's calling you to go, go. And not only did you, you didn't send over the people that were like, uh, we kind of like to see you go. You know, <laughs> I mean, there's certain people like that in a church where you're like, hey, I think you should think about going joining another church, you know? But you didn't send those people. You actually sent the people that you had discipled. And you sent the people who came with some spiritual maturity. And I'll tell you, in a young church, that is so critical and so important. So I just say thank you for the way that you disciple people. 
Thank you for the way that you tell people that they are loved by God. And then thank you for not hoarding or holding on to those people, but for actually letting them go and be, being generous in this community. And certainly you have a reputation for that. And I just want to say thank you for that. Now, having said that, we need more churches in Modesto. We need a lot more churches in Modesto. When we first started Redeemer, we kind of did a little survey of the city, and we took every single church that we knew, a Protestant church, Orthodox church, and said, how big is their church, and how many seats do they have in it? And then we said, if every church had two Sunday morning services, we could, in fact, have enough seating for about 30,000 people in our valley. So you, you fill up Big Valley, you fill up Shelter Cove, you fill up Redeemer, you fill up uh, the house, you fill up Calvary Chapel, you fill up all the great churches in the city, and then you times them by two, that's about 30,000 people. Do, do you know how many people live in our city limits? About 200,000, just over 200,000. And within our county is 500,000. So the reality is we need to see more churches planted. Now, wouldn't you agree with me that most churches, they start out of arguments or disagreements? Isn't that the way it works most times? Like, I don't agree with you, so I'm going to go start my own thing. And, and you know, that, I, I think sometimes that's a good thing. Like, sometimes God creates a conflict to see it blessed in a different way. You remember the scripture where Paul and Barnabas to come together, and they have such a great conflict that they go two different directions and i'm sure great ministry came out of both of the works so sometimes that works but the scriptures are real clear jesus says in john 13 35 they will know we are disciples when we what have love one for another so how much more so if we plant churches out of unity how much more so would, you know, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians when he says, um, when you come together, they, they will say, surely God was amongst them. When all the churches gather and say, man, we need more churches. Let's do this on a unified perspective. So how, how can we make that possible? How can we make that possible? Because we have the same goal. We want to see God glorified. We want to see the church encouraged. We want to see individuals satisfied in the love of God. But how can we do this? Well, today, what I want to do is take a look at uh, the parable that Jesus gives us in Luke chapter 15. So if you want to turn there, and we're going to look at reasons behind disunity, and then we're going to look at what brings unity. And hopefully this is going to be a little bit of a different twist on this story than maybe what you have heard before. It's the, it's the parable of the prodigal son. And I'm sure you have heard lots of teaching on this. So I would ask you this morning, as we read through this and as we work through it, to keep an open attitude and heart to maybe God saying something new to you this morning through this text. So I'm going to start in Luke chapter 15, in verse 11. And Jesus said, there was a man who had... How many sons? Two, right? It doesn't say one son, it says two sons. It's going to be very important to us this morning. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And so he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the young son, he gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. 
and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I'm perishing here with hunger. I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his dad saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and your son. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to him, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf. Let's kill it. Let's have a barbecue. Let's celebrate. For this, my son, he was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and we have found him. And they began to celebrate. And then verse 25. Now, the older son, this is the second of the two sons, right? The oldest son, he's out in the field, and as he came, he drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, well, your brother has come home, your younger brother, he's come home, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. He's celebrating, but the older brother was angry, and he refused to go in, so his father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you, and I have disobeyed, I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came home, this son who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father says to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother that was dead is alive. He was lost and now he is found. Let's pray and then we'll jump into this text. Father, we pray that you would speak to us this morning through this, your word. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you love us. Amen. So there's two sons. The father had two sons. Paul, put up the next slide for me. There you go. Two sons. And, yet, and these two sons couldn't have been more different and yet similar at the same time. Similar because they were both seeking after acceptance. They were both seeking after purpose. They were both seeking after value, significance, and security. They're both looking for that, but different in the way that they were going about that task of looking for acceptance. Different because the younger brother, who probably never kept his half of the bedroom clean, he was probably covered in tattoos. He was probably a party animal. He was probably flippant. He was probably a practical joker. He was probably not serious about anything. He never paid attention in school. He was a dreamer. He wanted to get out into the world. He didn't realize any of the long-term long impact of any of his decisions. No, he only lived for the now. And his only concern in life, himself. 
himself. Honestly, I think this guy would have been a lot of fun to watch and maybe even to hang out with until his money ran out because he was just crazy wild. He'd be the guy who you'd say, watch that dude. He's going to do something interesting today. Now, the younger brother just lived for the now. He thought that he would find his way to acceptance and security and purpose and value and significance. He thought the way to do that was to just follow his feelings. In our modern day vernacular, we would use the word hedonism. Hedonism. This is what he was after. Just following his own feelings in order to find acceptance. The older brother is so much different in the way that he went about it. He's kind of this prude guy. He worked hard, he's organized, he kept his half of the room clean. He's a type A personality, personality. he's definitely a firstborn. He's conviction over compassion. He never played a practical joke and probably not, never got a tardy in school. Um, he probably saved every penny he ever made. He never made out with anybody. He never listened to Christian music, especially that horrible stuff with drums and guitars. And he never had a beer in his entire life, and certainly no hard liquor, not even NyQuil was, was on his plate. His place was hard work to establish himself. Why? Because his whole attitude in life was, if I do my part, then you do yours. If I invest, you pay me. If I, it, it was a business equation for him. It was karma to him. That's how he lived his life. This dude probably grew up in church. He probably went to Christian school or was homeschooled. And then he went to a college where you had to wear dresses and ties because that's how he knew how to associate with his world. This older brother thought the way to acceptance, security, purpose, value, significance was through following the law, moralism. And both believed their own way would work. They both believed. No, my way is going to work. And so the two, they're put in the same house, ironically. Can you imagine that? Some of you can because you're like, yeah, I've got a brother like that, or I've got a sister like that. Right? So you, you feel the weight of this story. But at some point, the younger brother, he leaves. And with all his reckless, short-term planning, everything falls apart. Do you think the older brother was sad to see him go? No, I think the older brother was like, Finally, that guy's gone. I'm so glad he's out of here. I, I, I hope that he just gets to go sow his oats, and I hope that everything comes back on him. And so the, the, older, the, the older brother is happy that he's gone, and I think the younger brother is probably happy as well. I get to do it my way. And, and the older brother would have said, oh, I'm glad you get to do it your way because you're so wise. Ha, ha, ha. And he's just kind of prodding him the whole time. I think these two are happy to be away from each other. What I'm trying to do here is paint a picture of the disunity that is in their house. Do you see it? You see the disunity, the dysfunctionalism that is in this house? Yeah, what happens in the story? What happens as we continue the story? The younger son leaves, he hits rock bottom, and then he confesses and he repents and he comes back to the older, he comes back to the father. He comes back to the father. And the older brother, he cannot believe that the younger brother would actually come back. I mean, the business equation, the karma, everything that the older brother knows, he knows that the younger brother shouldn't have come back at this point. Both sons are totally dissatisfied with the result 
of what they've been choosing to try and find their acceptance and their purpose and their value in. And both, in their dissatisfaction, come back to the father. Now what's interesting is this. The younger brother comes back to say, I'm sorry. And he lives in confession and repentance. But the older brother comes back to complain. To complain to the father. And the father responds. And what does he do in his response? He invites both of them into his love. He invites both of them into his love. He throws the younger son a party. And then in the midst of the older brother and all of his anger, he says to him, son, you're completely missing the point. This is not about karma. This is not a business equation. I love you because I love you because I love you. And the father begins to invite both sons back into his love. So I ask the question, where do you think unity was found? Where do you think unity is found? It's in the father. It's in the father. What an amazing story this is, that unity is tied back to this one truth, and that is that they are loved. They're loved by the father. The father runs out runs out to meet the younger brother, runs out. He's like, hey, I'm pulling up all of my garments and I'm gonna run. You know, in this kind of society, they wouldn't have even run, it would have been a, a sign of love for him to pick up his garments and kind of take a humble position and run. Like you would have sent a servant out to do this job. And yet the father says, I'm, I'm pulling out all the stops. I want this younger, I want my youngest son to know how much I love him. And then the father tells the older brother, you're just mistaken in how you're going about this equation. You're mistaken. This is not business. This is not you do your part and I'll do mine. This is you're welcome at the family table because you are my son. You're my son. That's who you are. The the miracle here at this point is that Jesus points to the fact that the two brothers are going to be unified. They're going to be unified. But it's not by changing their behavior. It's not by changing their behavior. It's by understanding the fact that they're both loved by the Father. Did you get that? You know, you think like, okay, we understand the story of the prodigal son as the prodigal son is excessive and extravagant and wasteful and a sinner, a complete sinner. And if he would just change his behavior, then we would know his heart has changed. And yet the reality is what Jesus says here is no, we're not talking, we're not even on the page yet of talking about changing his behavior. He says the very first thing that I want you to know, younger brother, is that you are loved by the Father that you are loved by God. And then the older brother, who is the religious guy, it's the same thing. He's going to be unified to God by knowing that he is loved by God. He doesn't say to the older brother, change your behavior. He says, while I was with you, everything that I have is yours. In other words, know the depth of my love for you. You know, if you went to the doctor with, uh, you know, like a cold or something like that, and you were sneezing like crazy, and you had a runny nose, and the doctor said to you, "Um, 
okay, I think we can take care of that. I think that we can take care of the sneezing. I can stop the sneezing from, from happening, and I can stop the, the runny nose. You would be somewhat dissatisfied with that doctor, wouldn't you? Because really what he's doing at that point is he's dress, addressing the symptoms, and he's not really dealing with the sickness or the virus deep down inside. And you would say, hey, thanks, doc, but I can get a prescription over the counter to stop me from sneezing, and I can get a prescription from over the counter for my runny nose to stop. What I'm really asking, and the reason why I'm in here today paying these exorbitant copays, is I want you to deal with the issue deep down in my heart. And that's what the father is doing here. He's saying, hey, the issue with the younger brother is he didn't know he was loved by the father, and so he runs off trying to find his acceptance in other places. The older brother, in all his anger and bitterness, doesn't know that he's loved by the father, so he tries to find the love of the father in just his work, in work, 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 in his behavior, in his performance. And yet what God does, what Jesus does in this story, is he actually says, no, wait a second, the behavior is the symptom, but the virus, the real problem, is that you, young man, and you, older brother, do not know that you are loved, and you're not living as loved, and therefore this is the way that your life has been heading. And so I want to, first of all, let you know that you are completely loved by the Father. You're loved by the Father. And that's what brings, that's what brings about unity. The irony at the end of the story, it, it's not really resolved, is it? We don't see them saying, yay, we all get to live together now, and this is going to be fun. You know, we end the story with the younger brother inside, partying and having a great time, being reconciled to the family, and yet the dad is outside trying to convince the older brother who is still living in anger out there. It's interesting to me that the irony in this is that the disunity is not continued by the younger brother, but it's continued by the older brother. The source of this disunity comes from the older brother. What do I mean by that? The younger brother, he comes to the end of his rope pretty quickly. I mean, you go out into the world and you try to find your acceptance and your security you try to find your value, your purpose, your significance out in the world, you will come to the end of your rope pretty quickly. It will tire you out. It will drain you. It will destroy you pretty quickly. And that's what we see in the story. And yet the older brother, he doesn't see what's going on here. He doesn't realize that his performance mentality, his trying to be made right through this moralism, through this legalism, he doesn't come to the end of his rope. And so he's still trying to convince the father, no, father, I'm not loved by you because you love me. I'm loved by you because I work for you. And the father's saying, no, son, that's not the way that this is. And the disunity is caused by this religious, this religious one. Uh, it, this strikes me really deeply, because I am one of those religious people. I am one of those older people, I, older brothers. I am one of those recovering Pharisees, as it were. Person who thought, oh, as long as I work hard for the Lord, then he will love me. And yet that causes a tremendous amount of disunity. What does, this, what does this parable teach us about our lives? 
What does this parable teach us about our lives? Well, here's, here's kind of the theme. Put up the next slide for me, Paul. There we go. This is supposed to be a pendulum right here. Can you, I, I don't know if you can read it, but it, it, says, it says identity in the center, and then it says acceptance, security, value, significance, and purpose around the outside. And, and I think that God has created us all with a desire for identity, a desire for security, a desire for purpose, a desire for value, a desire for significance. We all wake up every day and say, I would love to be accepted today. I would love to feel secure today. And the reality is, is because God has created us that way, because he has made us innately with that need, it's not wrong. It's good. It's really good. But the question is, is where are you going to go to try and have that need met? That's the, that's the issue. And so if we look at the younger brother, go to the next slide for me, Paul. The younger brother, he goes to the world. And oftentimes this is where we go. This is what we do in order to try and be accepted. So this would be things like that promotion at work. This, thing, this would be like that bank account. This would be like that car. This would be like that relationship. So in order to be accepted, I feel like I need to drive this type of car. I, I grew up, my dad had two Pintos. <laughs> I don't know if you know what Pintos are, but we had a, a green one and an orange one, and both had the fake paneling down the side. I mean, these were awesome. I wish I had one now. I could be such a hipster if I had one of those. You know, they're just, as long as no one like drives into the back of you and it explodes, you know, it would be all right. But, you know, so I mean, if, if I really want to be accepted and I'm driving around in this Pinto and I remember this as a kid and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, if, if we just had a better car, people would like me more. Or if I just had a, a nicer house, then people would like me more and there I would find acceptance. And yet what happens? What happens? So you think, oh, I'll go out and buy a new car then. And so you go out and you buy a new car, and all of a sudden, you have a what attached to that new car? A payment. And then all of a sudden, what happens? You're in slavery to that new payment. And guess what? That new car smell and new car look disappeared long before your payment did. But the slavery didn't, did it? And so what, what do you see here? You see, if we're going to look for our acceptance in the world, there's going to be a slavery that is attached to it. It's not to say that a new car is wrong. But I would ask you the much deeper question, not the symptom, but the virus question of where are you actually looking for acceptance? Maybe you're at one of those places in your life where you're looking at a pretty good promotion at your job, but you know that that promotion is going to come at the cost of your family. It's going to take more hours. It's going to take, and yet you would say, well, our security is in my work. And yet what you're doing is if your security is in your work, you're signing up for a life of bondage, just like the younger brother. How about the older brother? Next slide, Paul. There you go. The older brother, he thinks his acceptance and his security, he's going to try and find it in religion. If I just behave the right way, then I'm going to be accepted. If I just do the right stuff, then it's going to be okay. If I just, if I can just muster up enough 
effort, then God will bless me. And this is his thought. And yet the reality is in religion, what happens? You either become a liar or you become a judgmental bigot. Why? Because all of us know that we cannot, we cannot live to that standard that we think we need to, st- to, to be at. We can't live at that all the time in order to be accepted. You, you come to church and you think, look at that happy family over there. I wonder how they do it. And you know that you just got out of the car on the way here with a, with a massive fight again. And, and that's your thought. You're thinking, how is everybody else living so perfectly and they look so nice and their hair is done so great? And I woke up this morning and I didn't even feel like coming and it was hard enough to try and get here. And then what, what do you begin to do? You begin to say, okay, well, if I'm going to be accepted by my behavior, if I'm going to be accepted by my behavior, then what do I need to do? I need to put everybody else's behavior down. And this is what you begin to do. You begin to play at this game that, well, we do things this way here. And I do things like this in my life here, and I'm so glad I'm not one of you. At least I'm not a murderer. At least I don't treat my children like that. Did you see that lady in Target? Right? And we begin to put everybody down. Why? To make ourselves feel good. And yet, at the end of the day, you know that you want to be that mom in Target that was yelling at their kid. You know, you're like, I just want to unleash. You know, that kid, duh. And so you have those feelings, but then you become to be a liar about it. And you're like, no, everything's good. I'm fine. I don't want to live in confession or repentance. I can't live in confession or repentance because my acceptance, it comes from the fact that you think that I'm really pretty good, even though I'm not. So both of these ways are going to be really dissatisfying, and they're going to be a slavery They're going to put us in slavery if we try and seek identity there. But there's one final way, right? The final way is that love of the Father, and that's the gospel. That's the gospel. This is where, for by grace we have been saved. Do you know that verse from Ephesians where Jesus says, I laid down my life for you, I took your sin, and I gave you my righteousness? This is the beautiful part where Jesus says to us, I didn't save you because you were good. I I demonstrated my love for you, and while you were yet sinners, running the other direction, I tapped on your shoulder and said, come, follow me. And the Father reaches down and through the love of Christ says, I love you because I love you because I love you. And there is great, great acceptance there. And so all of a sudden now, I, I, I can wake up in the morning and I say, Because of what Jesus has done on that beautiful cross, I'm accepted by the Father. And if I'm accepted by the Father, then where else do I need to go to find my acceptance today? I'm already accepted. Or, God, because of what Jesus has done, you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the sovereign God of all creation who owns a thousand cattle on a thousand hills, you are my security today. And therefore, I don't need to try and figure out where my security is in terms of my bank account. Yeah, I want to be a responsible steward. But I don't need security from my bank account because I found it in God. And therefore, I'm able to give. Therefore, I'm able to maybe even not take that promotion at work because my security is in God. Do you see how this works? 
It's a beautiful thing when we realize the love of God is not through performance and is not through the world, but it is through Christ alone. It's through Christ alone. Now, I'll tell you what I found in my life. Can you put up the next slide for me, Paul? Is that I'm a swinger. And let's redeem that word, okay? Because <laughs> I'm a swinger. I swing back and forth between these two all the time. Sometimes I wake up in the morning. In fact, I remember a, a couple months ago, I was driving to work, and I saw this motorcycle, like a Harley Davidson. And I was like, if I had that, people would really like me, you know? <laughs> As if, you know? <laughs> You know, I mean, that'd be kind of fun to have. I, I'm, I've never even ridden a motorcycle in my life, so I don't even know what I'm getting into, but I thought, there's some sweet chrome on that thing over there. You know, and it's just enticing. And then within a few minutes, it's like the Lord reminds me, hey, are you sure you want one of those and all the repair bills that come with it and all the insurance and all the... Why? Because he's reminding me that that's actually a pathway to slavery. And then he says, I love you, Jim. I love you because I love you because I love you because of what Christ has done. And you're accepted because of me. And all of a sudden, that Harley Davidson just kind of goes, yeah, that'd be fun, but I don't need that in order to be loved. I'm cool. I'm okay. Or he reminds us that performance, that I can actually come to church and I can be honest. I can say, Man, I really struggled with temptation this week. Boy, this was a really doozer for me. In fact, I didn't just struggle with temptation. I gave into it. And I can, I can confess that before you because I know that you're going to love me no matter what I did because the Father loves me because all of my sin is taken away in Christ and the guilt and the shame is gone because of the cross. That was a beautiful song that we were singing about that. The guilt and the shame, gone. And now I can actually be honest with you, and when I can come to you and I can say, I'm, I'm really struggling with this. I'm having a hard time with this. And you can say, hey, let me remind you that you're loved by the Father. Let me remind you that your acceptance and your security come from Him. And all of a sudden, what are you doing? You're, you're reminding me of the goodness of the gospel, the goodness that I'm loved by Christ. And I think all of us, we swing from side to side every day. And one of the most important reasons that we get together as a church is to remind each other we're loved by God. That he is sovereign, that he's in control, that he's all-powerful, that he's worthy of our glory, that he is worthy of our praise. But then in that, he loves us. He loves us. Can you think about how your week would change this week if somebody just told you, you're loved by God. If someone in your community group said, hey, I know you're thinking about buying a new car, but can you tell me why? Like, is that really a good financial strategy for you? And you're like, well, it's not really a good financial thing, but I think I'd look really good in that new Camaro. And then someone said, you know what? God thinks you look pretty good not in that Camaro. <laughs> that you're okay, that you're okay. And what begins to happen? It begins to change your life. And the, and the reality is, next slide, Paul. Once you actually understand the love of God, once you understand what it means to live as loved, to live as loved, then you can start to enjoy the world the way that God intended it. 
because it's not wrong to have that job. It's not wrong to have that car. It's not wrong to have things and possessions. But God just doesn't want to see us enslaved to those things. And then you get to see rules and religion for what they really are, which is a way to save us from ourselves. Save us from our own stupidity. Save us from our own idiocracy. And when we look at his word and he says, do this and don't do that, we say, thank you. Thank you. I'm loved by you. And therefore, you're, as a good father who disciplines his children, you're pointing out to me why. And I realize I'm so loved by you that this is what you're doing. You're pointing out these things to me. And, I, and, and because I'm loved by you and I can actually live within the discipline, I can live within the habits that you have set. And it becomes to be a beautiful thing when you begin to understand the work of the gospel. So what brings disunity? When we try to find identity in the world or when we try to find identity in religion, what brings unity? When we begin to realize that we are loved by God, that we're loved by God. When we realize the love of the Father, there's a unifying theme. Why? Because then I can actually say no to my own desires then I can actually say yes to being submissive to one another. Then I can actually say, yeah, I, I don't need that in order to be accepted because I'm already loved by God. I don't need that promotion which is gonna create all sorts of disunity in my marriage. I don't need that relationship because I know that's gonna create disunity amongst all my friends. I know, I know I don't need that set of rules because I live underneath the rule of the love of God. And now all of a sudden I'm freed up in this because of the love of the Father, because of the love of the Father. What does this mean to, what does this story mean to us as churches? I don't think all of our churches are going to look alike. Do you? I hope they don't. I think there's an infinite beauty in the love of God. In fact, one of the, the reasons why I love thinking about having a multi-ethnic church, blacks, Chinese, Asians, Europeans, everybody coming together to worship Christ, it's because we all get to see him from a different perspective. We get to see our infinite, glorious God through a different set of eyes. And that would be absolutely amazing. You know what, what John says he's, when he sees the throne? He sees every tribe and every tongue coming together. And what a beautiful thought of all of us coming together and then a, a certain group from Africa being able to worship God and us look at them and go, wow, the way you worship God is radical and different. And I totally enjoy that. Like you showed me something about God and the way that you worship that I wouldn't have seen in my normal white self. God, I, I actually clapped on rhythm because I was standing next to one of my brothers who could do it. <laughs> this was amazing. It was a beautiful thing. You see, you see that, that's what the love of the Father does. And I can actually, when I see the love of the Father in my life, then I can say, hey, I can be okay with releasing maybe some of the control that I want and desire in my own heart and the selfishness of my own heart, I can release some of that because I know I'm loved by the Father and then I can let my brothers and my sisters begin to 
do things their way, and in that, I can begin to experience the gloriousness of God in incredible ways. If, if you are from a more conservative church, like a high church with liturgy, what's the tendency? The tendency is to look down on a uh, less conservative church. Or if you're from a freer, maybe a liberal church where it's more casual and community, your tendency is to blow off the conservative church's prudes. Like, they just do boring stuff. I went to um, a church service a couple weeks ago, which was high liturgy. Everything was parsed out through the entire service. And I think it was written in the 1700s. So it was like, wow, King James all the way through. Hard to understand. And yet the reality is, is I can appreciate that in a different way when I know that I'm loved by God. The, the problem of both the, the so-called conservative church and the liberal church is they're both trying to find their identity in their behavior instead of saying, we're loved by God and therefore we get to live this way. And what, what would God call us to do then? What would God call us to do in that disunity, in that dysfunctional state as churches, or maybe as, even as individuals? Well, he would call us to live in the love of the Father. He'd call us to live in the love of the Father. In Galatians 5, Paul says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by, another, by one another. What does it mean by that? What does he mean? He means, listen, if we as churches are going to find our security in our giving, and in the members, and how many come to our churches, if we're going to be in competition that way because we find our security in that, we will never plant more churches. We will never be unified as churches. And I'll tell you, I, I, I hang out with a lot of pastors who they're like, I don't want to do anything with you because if we do things together as churches then I know that my people will probably come to you, and that means their giving dollars will probably come to you, and that means that I won't have giving dollars, and the amount of people that are in our churches will go, that are in my church will go down. What do you think that pastor is confessing at that point? He's confessing that his security is not really in the love of God, but he's confessing that his insecurity is in how many people show up and how many dollars they give. Wow. Yet... I'm, t I'm telling you this because this is what I struggle with as a pastor. That's what I struggle with. And yet every day I want to wake up and say, oh, I'm so loved by you, Father. I'm so loved by you, and you so have our church, and you so have the organization that you want in mind. You, you, you love what you're doing at Redeemer. And if that means I need to open up my hands and say, go wherever you want and do whatever you want, I'm good with that. I'm good with that. Why? Because I know that my security is in God through Christ alone. And it has nothing to do with church attendance and it has nothing to do with giving dollars. Oh, that's so convicting. How about in the security of traditions? It's the same thing. Some of us, we're so secure in the traditions that we have so hard to give some of those things up. That we, want to, we don't want to be unified with other churches because they do things a little bit differently. And yet, if you know you're loved by God, you're accepted by God, then you can say, I love how we do things. And I also love how you do things. 
It's a beautiful thing. I love what you're doing, Father, to display your glory over the whole planet in different ways. You know, I just, I want you to know, Big Valley, one of the reasons that I'm up here today is because your pastor knows he's loved by God. Do you recognize that? Your pastor knows he's loved by God because if he didn't know he was loved by God, then he would be too insecure to share his pulpit. And yet here I am. And I am so thankful, so thankful for the, the work of your pastor and the fact that he leads your staff. I, I can't tell you how welcomed I was last night at your service and then this morning. It was, I, I've never preached here. I've been to one Sunday service here and yet I can tell you it was almost like coming home. And I think that's because you guys get how to live as loved. That's a little phrase that we have at Redeemer, live as loved. We talk about that all the time, talk about that in so many of our church services. Live as loved, are you living as loved? And so I would just ask you, as we close right now, what difference would it make this week if you lived as loved this week? If you knew because of what Christ has done that you are loved by God? What difference would that make in your personal decisions? And then what difference would that make for us as a church-wide organization in the city of Modesto and then beyond if we really lived as loved? Let's pray. Father, I just want to say thanks for your word. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus nails it with the older brother and the younger brother. And he says it so clearly so that we don't have to continue to live in slavery, but we can live in freedom. And Father, I just thank you that your word is all about us enjoying your goodness and your glory. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to release our, trying to find our acceptance and our significance in the world and in religion and just realize that we are totally and completely loved by you. And because of that, we can live completely and totally differently. Yeah, we love you, Father. Thanks for this body of believers. Thanks for my brothers and sisters here. Amen.